Please turn to Romans chapter 3 and 1 Timothy 3.16. Another famous 3.16. I'm astonished how Often the opening prayer and the songs chosen reflect and demonstrate the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's coming forth for us by the grace of God. Today I want to continue on the subject of the astonishing pivot part two and Jesus, the final word. Throughout the Psalms, famously, there is a royal motif, a motif of God's king, God's representative on earth. And what's remarkable about that is so often that king himself requires deliverance from God. And God considers the king to be his righteous one. And God acts in a way that delivers his righteous king. As the proverb says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even that man's enemies to be allies of his. Nevermore is this true and never more true than in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's earthly divine and human representative. And came to the earth, and when he did, his days in the flesh climaxed in what the scripture calls great crying and tears to God who was able to deliver him. Jesus became the full measure and fulfillment of that kingly figure throughout the Psalms who called upon God for deliverance and was heard. And was heard. And so I want you to see today something that I think we may have introduced with a rather loud voice on Thursday. Speaking of a person who is not named in a passage we're going to read in a moment. But God in these last days, as Hebrews opens in verse 2, he speaks about how God spoke in various incremental ways and ways through the prophets, but now has spoken to us in his son. And in speaking to us in his son, all of the prophets light up as being the message of his son and of the universal restoration that he brings with him. Similarly, Romans opens up as Paul announces the gospel, as he calls it the gospel of God, That's all about his son. As spoken of in the prophets. So I'm going to read the first four verses of Romans. Before we get to our great pivot. Paul a slave of Christ Jesus. Now there he means an imperial slave. A slave of a royal king. The king of kings. Paul is a herald. Of the king. He announces to the nations. That there is a king of kings. 
And the message that he brings brings about the obedience of faith, which is a change in controlling allegiance so that eventually the scripture teaches us very clearly that every knee will genuflect of all humankind in all of its times, that every tongue will pledge allegiance to him as they acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua, Jesus, to the glory of God the Father, an event that results in God being all in all. Romans 1, then Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, effectively summoned to be an apostle, an emissary, a herald, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God. The gospel that he's opposing here, that we've seen as a kind of martial arts rhetorical metaphor, is a gospel that's not the gospel of God, and it's not about God's righteousness. It's about man establishing his own righteousness. The gospel that Paul is opposing is from a missionary Christian Jewish teacher. The idea behind his gospel is Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. He died on the cross. And by his death and resurrection, he opens the way for the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathen, the outliers to come into true Israel. But they must do it through submitting to circumcision on the part of the males and then by observance of Moses' law with emphasis on certain dietary kosher restrictions and observance of holidays and ultimately all of what Moses commanded. Paul does not speak of this gospel. He speaks against it. He calls it the gospel of God. It's all about God's son. And it's an announcement of God's righteousness through the faithfulness of his king, his kingly representative, his Messiah, his son, in whom he is well pleased. God the Father is well pleased with Jesus, and therefore he is well pleased with all who are representative, representatively presented in him. And that includes you. Now, I could go on and do an exposition, but let's just hit this real fast because I got a point to make today. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, effectively summoned to be an apostle, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel. It's quite a thing to be limited to the task of preaching the gospel. I can't even describe to you the experience when that happens to a person. Verse 2, which God promised beforehand through his prophets, there it is, in the holy writings. This gospel and the sacred writings, he means, the writings of the prophets, are all about his son. Who is from the seed of David, the royal line, the royal lineage. Here's the royal motif repeating itself. According to the flesh. Hereditary heritage is what the flesh means here. 
Elsewhere, Paul uses the flesh with a capital F to indicate the enemy of the spirit, the controlling influence of the old age on people. Here he uses it according to a hereditary lineage, Jesus descending from David. Designated, says verse 4, as the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. That's very pivotal. But now I want you to see in 1 Timothy 3, and I said all the way back in Romans the Epistle, Lesson 1, that I was going to use the pastoral epistles as an effective and powerful interpretive tool to interpret this document called Romans. And that's what it was. It was interpretive of Romans. This is a pivotal verse also, speaking of pivotal. 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, And great is the mystery. He speaks here of a radical divine disclosure, a universal divine disclosure, But this time, instead of mentioning the part for the whole or really mentioning the whole of the mystery, he centers on the nucleus of the mystery. He nucleates the mystery by presenting the very heart and center of the mystery, which fans out universally. That heart and that center is Jesus. Great is the mystery... And he speaks about, in verse 15, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church, which is the house of God. In other words, what the spiritual life is. And so he says, great is the mystery at the base of this aforementioned spiritual life or livingness of the church of the living God, in verse 15. So he says, great is this mystery. And then he presents the features of it. He who was revealed... Now, we have here in the word revealed, phanerao, P-H-A-N-E-R-O, omicron, O, what is a synonym. In other words, it's almost virtually interchangeable with a very important verb that Paul used, apocalypto, where we get the word apocalypse. And apocalypto is revealed, is a demonstration of a shocking, dramatic demonstration of God of his righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says, because it is the power of God for salvation. And it's perceived as such by all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek. In other words, when the gospel is proclaimed, God produces faith in us, which isn't faith by which we're justified, but it's faith that recognizes that we were justified by the faithfulness of God's representative king, Jesus Christ. So phanerao, used here, is a virtual synonym with apocalypto. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because therein the righteousness of God is revealed, apocalypto. It is shockingly disclosed revealed the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and that means God's faithfulness to 
faith, and that means Christ's faithfulness. God's righteousness is revealed in Christ's faithfulness, in Christ's obedience, as Denny's prayer reflected an understanding of that. We're justified, rectified, set right, and liberated from sin and brought under a new controlling allegiance by the death of Jesus Christ, not by our faith. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been justified, says Romans 5, 9, not by our faith. The gospel is about God's righteousness in Christ's faithfulness. And so, great is the mystery. That's the mystery in total. The mystery ultimately that Paul proclaims is the recapitulation or the gathering together of all of creation under the headship of Jesus Christ, whose only requirement of us is freedom. Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Christ has made you free. It was for freedom that he freed you. Now, so let's back up a little bit. Great is the mystery, which is at the base of this aforementioned Christian living. He says in verse 15, he who was revealed, phanarao, same word used in Romans 3.21, where we're going to begin the great and astonishing pivot that Paul makes in his martial arts rhetorical battle with this other gospel. He who was revealed in the flesh, this is referring to the same thing as Romans, in the flesh, that's a reference to the incarnation that we call it which is the initiation of what we call the Christ advent and the Christ event. Romans 8, 2, and 3 speaks about it. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and what the law could not do, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And by his death, condemned sin in Christ's Flesh on the cross. So the mystery we're talking about now, the heart of the mystery, the nucleus of the mystery, the person at the center and heart of the mystery, Jesus. He's not even mentioned by name here, and that's what leaves us in suspense. It's like a mystery novel. Who done it? Who's the one who did it? Who is the one we're going to ultimately focus on? And you'll see the final word is Jesus. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So he who was revealed, same as like Apocalypto, in the flesh, was, listen to this, was justified by the Spirit. Now that's stunning. Because this is what we're going to see at the heart of the pivot, the astonishing pivot. Who was justified? Well, he who was manifest in the flesh by incarnation. When was he justified? When he died. Because why? No one living will be justified in God's sight. Christ died. Now, his death 
was the climax of a life of obedience to God, a life of faithfulness to God, a life that led that obedience to the extent of death on a cross by crucifixion, and then to burial, and then to resurrection, which was the proof of his justification. Romans 1.17 is often touted as the key verse of Romans, the thesis verse, but what does it say there? My righteous one, says the Habakkuk, where it's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous one, or my righteous one, will live by faithfulness. He will be, in other words, justified and given life by his faithfulness. The righteous one is none other than Jesus Christ in Romans 1.17. He's called the righteous one in 1 Peter 3.18. He, the righteous one, died for all the unrighteous to bring us, who's, the, who's us, all the unrighteous, to God. 1 Peter 3.18. When Ananias saw Saul of Tarsus, who was blinded by seeing Jesus in his glorified and transfigured resurrected humanity which is not what Mary Magdalene saw in the garden which is why Jesus said don't embrace me yet don't embrace me I haven't yet ascended to the father he was raised from the dead with an incorruptible immortal human body but he was yet to be transfigured into the form that we will see him in when he comes Paul saw him in that form that transfigured glorious immortal incorruptible human frame that still retains the scars that's transformative but when that event was interpreted by a man in Damascus named Ananias who was a Jewish Christian he said God has willed that you would see the righteous one and hear a word from his mouth Who's the righteous one that he saw? Well, let me think. The one who he saw introduced himself pretty plainly as, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. It's something when people accuse someone and malign and they slander and they accuse the followers of someone and then all of a sudden they may see them at a coffee shop and they don't recall them and they and they introduce themselves and they say, I'm so-and-so whom you're maligning and slandering every day. That's happened before in history, I think. It's about to happen again and again. It always does. But that caused the conversion in Saul of Tarsus. He saw the righteous one. Great is the mystery of godliness, which is the base of our Christian life, true piety. He who was revealed in the flesh by incarnation was justified by the Spirit after his faithfulness unto death. That's the Christ event. Then he was seen by designated messengers. I don't think that means angels here. It has the same word angelos for messengers in Revelation 1.20 and in 2 seven times in Revelation 2 and 3. It means messengers. I think this is referring to the event that following his justification by the spirit and his life in resurrection he was seen by 
angelos, messengers, apostles. In Acts 1.11, they saw him before he ascended. Then he was taken up in glory. They were commissioned. When the spirit comes upon you, he said to them, then you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Why the uttermost parts of the world? Because Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. And God does the turning. And therefore, every knee, says God, I swear by my own essence, every knee will bow to me. And every tongue, as Paul says, sing praise in acknowledgement of me, God says. So he was seen, I've, desig- I've said it this way, seen by designated messengers, proclaimed among the nations, as Paul is doing, his gospel was to be proclaimed among the Gentiles to bring about the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26, believed in the world. That means believed on by the world. Representatives of those who are believing in him are representatives of the whole of humanity that's destined to believe in him. But here we have, then I translate the last phrase as having been taken up in glory. He was proclaimed among the nations, having been taken up in glory. So what do we have here? We have the Incarnation as the initiation of the Christ event. Justification, which is at the heart of the Christ event. Who was justified? The same one who was incarnated and revealed in the flesh. The word that was always with God, that always was God, became flesh, says John in John 1.14. And we beheld, who's we? Certain angelos, certain messengers, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth, meaning he was the full covenantal fulfillment of God's covenant with mankind. God's righteousness revealed in Christ's faithfulness for all mankind. Now, I hope you'll follow this, and I think I'm going to have to fan this out in several messages We have the incarnation as the initiation of the Christ event, the justification by the spirit, which is the same as his resurrection from the dead, which is at the heart of the Christ event, seen by designated messengers and then proclaimed among the nations, having been who he was believed on in the world and having been taken up into glory, which is the final act of the Christ event. For the Christ event includes incarnation, a life lived in the flesh of perfect obedience to God, a life that culminated in the passion, the crucifixion, the dying, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension. And when he ascended, he ascended to a throne, This day I have begotten you is a royal term. It is a royal declaration when a king ascends to his throne. He is enthroned in glory. You were included with him in his crucifixion. I was crucified with Christ. 
In his death, you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. In his burial, you were buried with him by the immersion of the Holy Spirit. We were raised together with him in Colossians 3.1. We were made to sit down with him, raised up and ascended, and made to sit down with him in heavenly places, making us a kingdom of priests in Christ. Who is the who? It begins with he who was revealed in the flesh. Now, he is the who is the he? Who is the he who? Who is the who? That's hard to say on Sunday morning. This who of this great mystery and the one who is at the nucleus of the great mystery, which is the mystery in toto, the total mystery, is none other than Jesus the Nazarene. Note the first two elements of this great mystery, which is of necessity to be universally acknowledged. In fact, when it says great is the mystery, he says indisputably great, which means a mystery that is to be universally acknowledged. Right at the start, he says homo legomenos, which means indisputable, incontrovertible, and universally to be acknowledged. This mystery will universally be acknowledged. And what does the preacher do? He acknowledges it from the pulpit. He shouts it from the housetops. He is set apart and limited to the preaching of the gospel. So all the interests that people have enthusiastically in life, he may have, but not too enthusiastically because he's got one enthusiasm. So, justified. Who was justified? Let me give you a hint from the start, because I might lose one or two of you if I haven't already. When Christ died, he died for all. But Paul makes something out of that. He says, but when he died for all, all died. And that's what controlled Paul. That idea created in him a new controlling allegiance. He said, from now on, since I've judged that one died for all and all, then all died, now the love of Christ controls me. For who? For everybody. For those who I once considered my enemies, for those whom I once wanted to slaughter, the followers of the Lamb. He said, now the love of Christ controls me. Because I have determined that one died for all. Who's the one who died? We'll hit that. And if one died for all, then all died. Now listen, if Jesus was justified by God, if he's the one that God justified, if he's the king that God delivered because he's my righteous one who will live by his faithfulness, If Christ died for all, and all died, what happened when Christ died and was justified? If one was justified, then all were justified. I'm going to give you the punchline before the end. Here's the punchline. Years ago, I prayed, and I thought it was outrageous, and I actually repented for praying the prayer because I thought it was outrageous. I said to God, would you... Will you 
justify all mankind. Will you? And then I thought the answer was yes, I will. And through the course of several past years, I said the answer is yes, I will. I thought. But God answered that in a negative. He said, no, I will not. I already have. One died for all. Then all died. The one who died is the one whom God justified. Then all were justified. When? I think when he said to tell us die. God doesn't think in human tenses. God is the eternal one who inhabits eternity with him also who is of a crushed spirit. I could also ask, Father, does it mean that I must have a crushed spirit to see as you see? And I fear the answer may be in the affirmative. But that's what apostleship is about. Not that I'm an apostle. but That's what being an emissary of Christ is about when you're more and more reduced and limited to the proclamation of this gospel. Then you become sort of crushed. You become weak. The, the apostles in Paul's time weren't known for their strength. They were known for their weakness. Because in their weakness, God was powerful. Their presentation wasn't always like the philosophical travelers of the sophists who used all the techniques of, and gimmicks of grabbing attention from people. They weren't that way at all. They preached Christ and him crucified. They preached a crucified man as God Almighty. And they were persecuted and misunderstood, maligned and slandered. And when people couldn't malign and slander effectively, their message, it turned personal, and they attacked their personal lives, their past lives, their present lives. They were weak. So now I'll back up and show you how I got to that conclusion. Dikaiao is the word he uses for justification. It's a key word like apocalypto is. In the first part of Romans where the apostle is engaged in what I've called a Wing Chun rhetorical battle. Wing Chun is that martial art you might see on TV sometimes choreographed where the opponents are inches apart all the time. There's always a strike going on and it's so fast it's unbelievable. That's what's happening in Romans 118 to 320 until Paul finally pulls a pivotal move where he turns suddenly in a mixed martial arts match to jujitsu in which he uses all the energy of the false teacher against him and pulls him with him down a waterfall called All Have Sinned, and you know it, and I know it. And now he goes into the unbelievably powerful pivot. He makes a pivot move that goes into Romans 5 through 8, which is, what I call the unchained gospel, but here's the introduction to it. We'll start with Romans 3.21. But now, he's in, 
He's in an emphatic, logical transition. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is the astonishing pivot. Paul has decimated. I won't say decimated because that means destroying only one out of ten. When you decimate, the Romans used to decimate a town. They'd pull all the citizens out. They'd kill one out of every ten. That's called decimate. Paul didn't decimate this gospel. He demolished this false gospel. And when he did in Romans 3.20 by saying no flesh, no flesh can ever be justified by the works of the law, like you've said, he then says, but now, apart from the law, the law of Moses, the righteousness of God, that's what he talked about in Romans 1.17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not my righteousness, which I have to compare with everybody else and somebody would be ashamed. Or if we all compared our righteousness to God's righteousness, we'd all be ashamed. There's no shame in the gospel because it's a proclamation of God's righteousness in Christ's faithfulness by which one person was justified and when one was justified, all were justified. Paul's saying to all the groups in Romans in Rome that are fighting each other, you got nothing to fight about anymore. It isn't your comparative faith with someone else's faith. It's not your strong faith compared to their weak faith. It isn't your Jewish heritage compared to their pagan heritage. It isn't this versus that. It's God's righteousness. It's you under the total enslavement of sin, all of us were, all of us were complicit with sin, and all of us are justified in the one who was justified when he died, and that justification was demonstrated in his life from the dead. And so he gives life-giving justification to all mankind in Romans 5.18. What do you have to fight about? Drop your stones. Or... If you're without sin, throw the first one. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Wow, same word as in 1 Timothy 3.16. Manifested. Apocalyptically revealed. Where? At the cross. And at the empty tomb. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Again, in Romans 1.17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypto, stunningly disclosed from the faithfulness of God to the faithfulness of Christ. We've always read that, or the reformers read it as from faith, which means your faith, to faith, which means you get faithful. I read it this way. If it's God's righteousness, his righteousness is revealed from his faithfulness to Christ's faithfulness for us that justified all mankind. So then... Look at it in verse 22. That is, wait, wait, this is astonishing pivot. Doug Campbell wrote a book on it. The whole book is about this thick on these verses. So I'm trying to reduce it down for you. I was told again by a friend who called me a hardhead in a, in a polite way, because I am. With, we have hardheaded discussions, which is a good thing. 
But he said to me, I don't want to go through the whole birth process. Just give me the baby. Well, here's the baby. But now, apart from the law, the law of Moses, and any possibility of being justified by any works of the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed. And that same righteousness is attested to by the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament salutes this truth and says, yes, that's what we're talking about. That is, he says in verse 22, and this is a very tricky way to, I'm just giving you the baby. Believe me, the birth process hurt. I won't give you that. I'll give you the baby. Verse 22, that is the righteousness of God. It it, it slaps you here in the face just like a baby gets slapped on the posterior. At least in the 50s you did. We were blessed in the 50s because we got welcomed to this world by getting slapped on the ass. Now, now you've got to cuddle and coddle and do that all the way until they're teenagers and cuddle and coddle them and then send them out into the world, but then be like a helicopter and follow them. And reward them. Oh, you fell down. Oh, that was a good fall. Nice. Good technique. Oh, you dropped the ball. Oh, you tried. You tried. No, next time catch the ball. No, never mind. I could go. I don't don't want to go there. There's a reason they call us baby boomers. But anyways, verse 22, that is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not through faith in Jesus Christ where you're rewarded with righteousness. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. God only recognizes one man's obedience, and it's Christ's obedience to the death of the cross. God only recognizes and justifies one man's faithfulness, and it's Jesus Christ's faithfulness and his faithful death, which is called the blood of Christ, which has justified us in Romans 5, 9, which is called the death of Christ, which has reconciled the world to himself in Romans 5, 10, and the life of Christ, which is now he's a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, was a living soul. He lived for himself. He was a single, alone seed. Christ, the second man, Adam, was the seed that went into the ground and died and brought forth much fruit. He brought forth life and righteousness for all the human race that Adam brought to death and condemnation. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Churches that are built around another gospel can't even be called churches because this is how we behave in the church of the living God by the universal acknowledgement, by the undisputable truth of this mystery. If a a church so-called isn't based upon this declaration, then all it is is just another social gathering which turns people away because of its damn self-righteousness. So, let me check my heart rate. There isn't one. And then it says it's the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But the word phanerao here belongs to this phrase, to all who have faith. So here it says he justifies all who have faith. No, it says... 
It, it is manifested to. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Christ is manifested to those who have faith. And faith is God's gift to us. God awakens us by the gospel like he is right here today. He's waking you up to this faith that Jesus Christ's faithfulness is what justifies. Our faith does not justify. Our faith recognizes that Jesus Christ's faithfulness justified us. And that faithfulness culminated in a thing called crucifixion and death. And the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, which is what this passage in 1 Timothy 3.16 means. When he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, that's what it means that he was justified by the Holy Spirit. His justification was the being brought to life by the Holy Spirit for his as a kind of reward of his faithfulness. My righteous one, says Habakkuk 2.4, the key verse in all of Romans from the Old Testament. My righteous one, it says in the Hebrew text, my righteous one, my king on the earth, my king of kings on the earth, my royal human and divine representative will live by his own faithfulness. But the difference is, He who lives by his own faithfulness gives that same life to all and credits that same faithfulness to all in that sense. So here it is. But now, again, here's the pivot. Paul makes the pivot here. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, attested by the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament tells us about this. If you read it right, starting with Genesis 1-1, if you read it right, It is manifested to all who have faith. For there is no distinction. Paul's breaking down the walls there. There's no distinction. There is no difference. Mox nix. My dad used to say, because he knew some German. Mox nix. Makes no difference. Means nothing. No distinction between Jewish and Gentile. Between slave and free. Between black and white. Between oriental and occidental. Between Democrat and Republican. Doesn't make any difference. Because why? Because all sin. The aorist tense there can mean all did sin when Adam sinned, but it also means all are complicit with sin in their lives. If you've lived longer than 10 minutes, or if you've come into consciousness that you're an awareness of your living, you've sinned. You've complied with the power of sin that controls every person's volition in this world. All sinned. And all sin. And they fall short, or they literally, they lack the glory of God. They lack it. But I like verse 24, and are justified freely. Guess what the word freely means? Unconditionally. Freely means unconditionally. So here's a gift. I'm giving you this gift. I'm giving you $500. That, that to me is a lot of money. It isn't to some people. I still bend over to pick up a penny if it falls. It's still money. Plus, it's a wonderful portrait of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Now, anyways, I say to you, I'm giving you this gift, $500. If 
you're good enough to receive it. If you do this for me, this for me, and this for me. If you trust me, how about this one? If you trust me implicitly, and if you ask me into your heart, and if you hold me in your heart, I'll give you this 500. Now, it's a gift. It's unconditionally. We're justified unconditionally. Who is? All! Sinned, being, therefore, justified freely by God's grace, by God's grace, by God's grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus is his redemptive death, which is his faithfulness in climax, which is his obedience, which was to the extent of death by crucifixion. We're justified not by our faith, but by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I take at full face value what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So if God was in Christ reconciling himself, the world to himself, and when Jesus said it's finished at the end of that, then I say the world is reconciled to God. Because he who knew no sin became sin, became sin, became sin. But he who became sin was justified by his faithfulness. And that's why Romans 6, 8, 9 goes on to say that he died to sin. He died away from sin. He was justified away from what? Let's follow this. I'm giving you some of the birth process. I'm sorry. I'm just so hard-headed. And are justified freely by, unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly. Where? On a hill called Golgotha. Nailed to a tree. Nailed to the cross slats. Nailed through his feet to the vertical beam. Nailed there with a crown of thorns on his head. And oddly enough and strangely and providentially enough, a title over his head called King of the Jews. And that was his throne as far as the world was concerned. You want to see God? You want to know what God the Father is like? Then you see his son nailed to a tree. That's God. You can try to see him in the stars or in the creation, the terrestrial or the celestial creation if you want. I can't see God there. I can see something about his magnitude and his eternity and his power. I can't see his love, though, until I see a crucified man with his arms outstretched in the declaration of the most foreign kind of love. God displayed publicly as the mercy seat, helisterion. It's a word for the mercy seat. That's the seat where the mercy to all happened is is what that is. The cross is the seat of mercy. It's the center of the dispersion of mercy to all because God's whole intent was to have mercy on all and God's intention was realized at the cross of Calvary, not in some future eschatological moment. That's when it will be manifested for everybody to see, but God's already done the showing of mercy to all mankind through Jesus Christ. Therefore, by grace, he has justified us and according to his mercy, he saved us. 
We're justified by grace. Titus 3, 5 to 7. Read it carefully sometime and wonder at the absence of your human faith in that whole passage. Titus 3, 5 through 7. You start with 4 if you want. When the philanthropy of God appeared. When did the philanthropy, God's love for humanity, appear in the cross of Christ? When did the grace of God appear in the cross of Christ? What does Titus 2.11 says? The grace of God appeared, colon, simply these words, salvation for all. Why? Because one was just, who was justified? God's kingly representative. Who for? Everybody. Look at it, verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood. That's my translation. You want the baby? There it is. That's his sacrificial death. A mercy seat through the faithfulness, Jesus Christ's faithfulness, that climaxed with his death or blood. The blood here is the sacrificial death. For the demonstration, here's another apocalyptic term of revelation, endexin, E-N-D-I-E-I-X-I-N, endexin. For, again, the exhibition of God's righteousness. I say that on purpose out loud because that's what it says in emphasis God's righteousness, a demonstration of God's righteousness, I say, Paul says with emphasis, who passed over the sins that were previously committed. Before the cross, God was patient. He passed over all those sins. He didn't remit their sins, and he didn't punish their sins. He waited. And then he says, by his forbearing patience or his clemency, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. Yes, Paul says, leading to a demonstration of his righteousness in the present time of crisis. Kairos means our present time, which is still that present time of crisis because it's the juxtaposition of the old evil age that's passing away and the oncoming age of the new creation which is here, but not yet fully manifested. Only those whom God awakens understand and understand the revelation of God's graciousness. So, what does it say here then? To show for a demonstration of his righteousness in the present time of crisis, to show that he, God, is righteous. Or if you want, because people already say, what about his justice? It means he's just. To show that he is just or righteous. And the justifier, listen carefully to this, because I've never translated it this way, because I never saw it this way until this week. And the justifier of that one, capitalize one, because he's not talking about someone else. He's talking about Jesus Christ himself. God is just as the justifier, and he is the justifier of that one by who by means of faithfulness or by means of faithfulness. God is just, and he's the justifier of that one by means of his faithfulness. In other words, God justified one person by that person's faithfulness. And that one person, last word, final word, Romans 3.26, final word of the crucial pivot, Jesus, 
It doesn't say he justifies the one who is of the faith in Jesus. That's, that's translation is almost as bad as the evil, evil translations of Augustine who didn't know the Greek and tried to tell half the world that they're going to hell and didn't understand and told, talked about the city of God and then ended with the fact that not many people are going to make it there. Just people like you, Augie, I suppose. Augie the hippo. I mean, Augustine of hippo. I got nothing left for that guy anymore. Nothing. He said some good stuff, but he said enough bad stuff to outweigh the good stuff. So he's more like the Jewish Christian teacher than he is like Paul. His gospel is more like a gospel of human righteousness under the threat of hell rather than God's righteousness under the promise of universal reconciliation. Not only the promise, but the fact of it. Jesus is the righteous one. I'm going to skip now. I'm going to give you the baby. I'm skipping two paragraphs of birth process. Me screaming in the birthing suite. The cave. The study. I'm going to give you the baby. Romans 6, 7. Look at it. Romans 6, 7. Here's Apothenon, not Parthenon, Apothenon. There's a person who is called in the Greek text. Sorry, Augustine, I know you don't like the Greek. But what did the Greek ever do to you? I mean, he makes good pizza. Greek pizza is really good. Uh, never mind. Here's the word, ha. Looks like this in the English translation. Soft breathing, ah, A-P-O-T-H-A-N-O-N. Ha, apathanon. Long, make that an Omicron O accent there. Ha, apathanon. The one who died. One, article. The one who died. The one who died. Verse 7 of Romans 6. For the one who died is justified. Away from sin. The word apa is used. Away from sin. Now how are we going to interpret the one who died? Who is it? Romans 8.34. Giving you the baby. Here's the baby. Romans 8.34. Paul's talking about in that final judgment, so-called, where you think the wrath of God's going to happen, teacher. Where you think the wrath of God's going to happen, Augustine. Where you think the wrath of God is going to happen to people, a large percentage of the human race, most American preachers, especially televangelists. And the first thing they open up with, Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person. You know what? To hell with that. You don't even know what he meant when he said hell. And that's already been worked out here. But anyways... I'm sorry I mocked. No, I'm not. I'm glad I mocked him. Even Elijah mocked the false prophets of Baal, so I'll mock him. What does it say in Romans 8.34? He starts off in 33. Who, who in that judgment is going to accuse you? Who's going to move to impeach you from your election? See, if people elect a man or a woman to the office of president... They can move to impeach under certain conditions. 
because that person's been elected by people. But what about someone who's elected by God? Who's going to move to impeach them? God who did the electing? In fact, it says, God who justifies? God who justified. Is he going to do it? Or how about this? Who is he that's going to condemn? Who's going to make a condemning statement in the final judgment? Christ? Ho apathanon? Christ, the one who died? Christ, the one who died. You can't dispute it there. It is the one who died is Christ. The one who died is Christ. The one who died in Romans 6, 7 was justified away from sin. And that means that when he was justified, okay, let's, again, 2 Corinthians 5.14, written before Romans, that's been absolutely proven without a shadow of a doubt. Paul wrote First and 2 Corinthians first. Why is Romans first in your New Testament? Because when they arranged the books of the New Testament, they arranged it from, in order to fit the pages and square them or reconcile them, as we say, they had to put the first, the longest first. Romans is the longest. It was put there first, but it was written last. So Paul already prefaced Romans with 2 Corinthians 5.14. Now the love of Christ controls me. I'm under a new controlling allegiance now because I have determined this. It's come to me and I've understood this now that if one died for all, then all died. But here the one who died was justified. If he died for all, then all died. Then when he died and was justified, then all were justified when he died. So what do you think Paul meant when he said, therefore being justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from wrath by his life? How did the Holy Spirit justify him by raising him from the dead? Justification isn't a judicial imputation where we're given righteousness and then expected to go sin and rebound, sin and rebound like life is a trampoline instead of the path of the just. We are justified away from sin's power. The king, the representative of God, the royal representative put himself under the control of the will of sinful men and was and died under the will of the flesh but he was made alive by the spirit the spirit justified him by making him alive and when he was made alive he said because i live you will live also and as romans 5:18 says he was obedient to the extent of death he was obedient and he was faithful in his one act of righteousness makes everybody righteous. Adam, the first man, was a living soul. He lived to himself. He lived by himself. He was the seed alone. Christ, the last Adam, became the seed in John 12, 24 that went into the ground having died and arose and brought forth much fruit. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, therefore, is not just a living soul living unto himself, but he's a life-giving spirit. Having died to sin, he arose to live forever with God and you were with him. When he died, you were with him. When he was justified, you were justified. Don't tell me God will save all mankind. Tell me that he already has. Then I'll salute you. Amen.
You're dismissed. See you Wednesday. No, sir, no Thursday service.